Well, good morning, everyone. Um, as you can see, I am not with you this morning. Uh, Nassim and I both got COVID uh, this week, so I am in isolation for a few more days. Um, but I'm feeling much better than I was earlier in the week. Um, just really want to thank everybody for your prayers and your offers for help and encouragement and support. Um, and also for the teams that have had to run around and do things differently, um, particularly for this Sunday. Um, just really want to thank you all for that, um, to accommodate for me not being able to be with you in person. Um, but let me just pray as we uh, look into God's word this morning. Um, well, Father God, we just want to thank you and praise you that you are the God of all the earth, um, that everything in this world was created by you and belongs to you and is treasured by you, um, including every single one of us. And God, we know that you have, um, that you have spoken and that you have things that you want to speak to us and for us to understand. And I just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to you this morning. I pray that um, you, by your spirit, would just really impress upon our hearts the things that you want us to hear from you. Um, and God, I pray that we would leave this place knowing that we have met with you um, and that we will not leave this place unchanged. We pray, Lord, for soft hearts and open ears. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, well, just really want to thank Tom Kimber last week for coming and speaking to us and taking us through the first half of this chapter last week. Um, and he pointed out when we look at this chapter as a whole, it's and it's one episode, you know, it all happens at the same time. Um, you know, the, we've got this incredible high and this incredible low placed right next to each other. You know, this, this incredible visitation um, by God and God's messengers, the promise of a son, finally a son with a time frame uh, to be born to Abraham and Sarah just within the year. Wonderful news for them and a great cause for celebration and delight. And now we come to the part of the chapter that is about judgment. It's about destruction. There's a warning, a foreshadowing of what is going to happen at Sodom and Gomorrah, that they will be judged by God and they are going to be completely destroyed. So not good news. Um, and this happens, as I said, all in the course of one day. Verse 16 tells us that um, the three messengers from God, um, after they had their meal and they had spoken to Abraham and Sarah, um, they delivered their message. And then Abraham, like, gets up because they're going to leave and he walks with them, um, you know, to kind of see them on their way as a good host. And then God speaks. Now, when we first encounter what God says here, he's probably speaking directly to the two angels that, um, that he is traveling with. Um, but he intends for Abraham to hear. Abraham's right there. He, you know, God didn't go off somewhere else and have this conversation. That's how we know what he said. So he intends for Abraham to hear. He intends for Abraham to understand not only what he is going to tell him later, 
but why he wants to tell him this. So verses 17 to 19 read, Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Now, for years, I glossed over these three verses, I've got to say, and I just jumped straight to the part where Abraham and God are kind of negotiating here because, you know, that's the main part, isn't it? Um, and that part certainly is vital to the story. You can't cut out that, that part. But we can't understand what follows without understanding why God initiated this in the first place. Because what we need to keep firmly in mind is that this was not Abraham's idea. God is the one who brought up this topic. He started the conversation. So God spoke first and he spoke with a purpose. God is going to come through on his promise to Abraham. Actually, this entire chapter is about his promise to Abraham. And that means that Abraham's family is going to grow and grow and grow into a great and powerful nation. But it is a nation that does not exist for its own benefit, right? It's when we remember back to God's first um, words, his first promise to Abraham that we have back in Genesis 12. He says to him that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham, through his family. So the nation that is born through Abraham should be a blessing and a light actually to the nations. And that will happen through physical children being born, right? So the fact that Isaac is going to be born is important. But actually, God is not looking, God has not chosen Abraham because he's got some special, some special genetics about him, right? Like it's not, it's not about him being special in himself physically as a person. What he really has chosen Abraham to do is to pass on the knowledge of God. See, that, that's what these verses are saying, that God is building Abraham, is going to build Abraham's um, family into this great nation. And Abraham's job is to direct, to teach his children and his household after him, to keep the ways of the Lord and to do what is right and what is just. So that is what he, that is his main purpose, right, for the conversation that follows. God, has, God wants to um, convey to Abraham truths of what is about to follow so that Abraham would be able to teach the generations that follow the truths about God. And this is for us also, because we are now the people of God. What we learn about God, all the ways in which we grow and learn how to trust him and follow him and hear from him, the truths that we learn about him, they are for ourselves. Definitely they are. But they are not just for ourselves. We are also to pass these truths on. Now, 
you may be you may have biological children but I know many of you um, who are listening here today don't have biological children not yet one day probably you will but as the family of God we are also to pass this on to each other to the more mature of us teaching the less mature and so there are essential things here that we learn that are going to shape us as a community of God's people. And I'm just going to focus on three of them. There are lots here that we could learn, but I'm going to just look at three. Firstly, the blessing is vital. Secondly, the judgment is fair. And thirdly, the hope is a substitute. The blessing is vital. The judgment is fair. The hope is a substitute. Now, first, the blessing that is vital. So up until this point, um, you know, maybe Abraham has actually felt more like the blessing of God is, is personal, like it's for him and for his family. And it is personally for him and his family. You can't get away from that. But there is a much wider perspective. Um, and what God is showing him now is a much fuller extent of what that wider perspective is. He's showing him what happens when people choose to live apart from God, when they are rejecting God and rejecting his ways. And what happens actually because they have rejected God and rejected his ways, they are rejecting his blessing. So Abraham didn't live in those cities, but he would have known enough about what is happening in those cities to understand that there was incredible wickedness and sin and unrighteousness there. You see, when he pleads to God, he doesn't try to justify the city. He doesn't try to justify the people there in general. Abraham doesn't express a concern, actually, that God's judgment itself is unfair. You see, because what we have here, what is going on in the cities on the plain, represented by its two biggest, Sodom and Gomorrah. What we have in this story are echoes of the state of humanity in the time before the flood, right? Before God's huge worldwide cataclysmic destruction unmaking of creation. That is what Sodom and Gomorrah represent here. That is their state without God. It's also as in the time after the flood, when people gathered to build the Tower of Babel that would reach to the heavens, right? They, they were trying to get to a place where they could be like God. And God came down to see what they were doing. God comes down, he said, he's gonna come down to Sodom and Gomorrah to see what they're doing. This is the sort of wickedness, this is the sort of turned awayness um, of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah that we see. They are disdainful of God. They're completely and utterly rejecting God and going their own way. And the state of humanity that has turned its back on God is not a shining beacon of hope and wonder. The cries of injustice have gone up to God. And we will see in the next chapter that Sodom is the sort of place where it's too dangerous to go out at night. And actually, even if you stay inside at night, that danger will come and find you. Um, 
It is not a place of safety or of rest. These people, they're not okay without God. They, they don't want to admit it, but they need God and they need his blessing. They need to know his ways and learn how to live. The blessing is vital. It isn't an optional extra. It's not the difference between okay and better. It's the difference between life and death. It was true then and it's true now. And I wonder whether, whether you really feel the weight of that, that the blessing of God that, that we know, that we have in our hands so easily in the word of God, that, that we have living in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been graced to us undeservedly that blessing is absolutely vital not just to us but to everyone and this is not about whether you've bought a new car and you know you forgot whether you remember to get car mats for your car this is about whether you have an engine in your car there are two basic ways for us to look at a world without jesus and we can look at it with a kind of like a kind of longing and, and wishing that we could participate in their ways and you know and we want to join in and find a different way to get a blessing. Um, but there's no true blessing there. You know, it's the blessing is not found in in money or power or fun or doing whatever it is that you want to do or in family or success. That that's where the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were looking for the blessing, but it was not there. Well, we can look at disgust with disdain. We can pull away and set ourselves against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Um, to put up barriers and set battle lines. Now there are battle lines but they were never intended to be battles against people. They, were bat they are battles against the powers of evil, against sin. In this way, we could we do try to drive ourselves apart from people. We try to separate ourselves from them. But that is not the way to respond either, because Jesus doesn't do either of these things. Jesus comes to sinners and he welcomes them. He treats them with compassion and he speaks word of words of truth and grace to open the way for them to know God, but without ever stepping into the sins and the hopes that they carry. He tries to open, his, his, his heart is to open the way for them to know the blessing God and to receive that blessing. The blessing is vital and Jesus knew that. Abraham is learning it and we need to take it to heart. There is no one who will truly be able to live both in this world and the next without the gracious blessing of God that we know in Christ. The blessing is vital. Point two, the judgment is fair. Now, the judgment of God 
is a very unpopular idea, right? Even amongst Christians. Because, you know, is God being unloving? Is God being unfair? Does he even have any right to judge? Well, the answers according to the Bible, in case you were wondering, are no, no, and yes. So I've answered that. <laughs> but really, I do want to explore this with you, even though I'll only be able to do so really briefly today. How, how do we think about the judgment of God? I want to say the very first thing, and that's foundational to all of this, is that God never stops loving we will never have a situation in which God turns off his love in order to judge. It doesn't work that way. God doesn't ever stop being love and expressing love. So how do we think about the judgment of God in light of his love that never fails and never ends? You know, I think a lot of the time when we think about the judgment of God, we think about it like abstractly without particular facts or like a case in mind. But let me put some, some cases in front of you. You know, should there be judgment for perpetrators of the Holocaust? Should there be judgment for people who prey on children? Should there be judgment for mass murderers? Should there be judgment for those who enslave other people. And what would you think of a God who simply overlooked judgment for those people, who said, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it, I'll let that one go. Now that, that would be a truly horrific God to serve and love. Because what could that sort of God say to the victims? What sort of hope would there be for them? Where would they go to for justice? Where would they go to be vindicated? Just, I mean, just think about it from a personal perspective. If somebody comes to you and they have been treated unjustly, unfairly, they've been sinned against and they're a victim, what, what is your response? You want to change their situation, right? You want to bring about justice in their lives because it's not right to let it stand. And if that is how we feel in our humanity, in our sinfulness, imagine a God who did not even feel that. The truth is that we would not want to love such a God and that sort of God would not be worthy of love because that is not a loving response. The God of the Bible, even in these verses here that we have, hears the outcry of those who have been trampled, who have been treated unjustly. It is the cries of those people that have reached the ears of God and that God is answering when he says, I will come down and see what is happening in Sodom. Those cries are like the cries of the blood of Abel that rises up to God after he has been killed by his brother. It is the cry of the Israelites who are enslaved by the Egyptians. God responds to these cries and he will bring justice. 
but maybe actually the deeper reason, the real reason that we don't want a God who judges is that we want to be the ones who set the terms of judgment. We want to be the ones who judge. Um, or at the least, we want to be excluded from the judgment according to God's standards. But what happens when we get to set the terms ourselves? What happens when everybody gets to just do whatever they want, where there's no actual fixed standard? Well, <laughs> I don't think it takes much imagination to um, see that chaos ensues. We can actually see the reality of that sort of chaos to a significant extent, even now. Because at the moment, we, you know, we, we see different rights to religious freedoms. We see different laws regarding abortion. We see different laws regarding sexuality and gender. Now, you can look at those laws individually and just, you know, make a judgment about them. That, that's a thing we can do. But when you draw them all together, when you try to draw them all together, what you find is that there is no consistent understanding of what it means to be a person. There is no consistent understanding of the rights that should attach to such a, to a person or even how those rights should be attached to a person. We can't agree. We can't agree even on what it means to be who we are. What, what, what is it that we are? That, that is the way of absolute and utter chaos and confusion. And that is what we see all around us. We don't know who we are. We don't know how to work it out. We are looking all over the place to try and figure it out. And we are looking in all different ways. And it changes. It's very, very, very confusing. And even worse, it leads to anxiety and depression. And we just cannot function well in a world where we are trying to set all the standards ourselves. We are terrible at it. But Abraham prays, will not the judge of all the earth do right? You know, when I've read this in the past and seen, I've seen this exchange as a kind of like a bargaining between Abraham and God or like, or like Abraham trying to change God's mind. But as I study this more, in light of understanding that God is trying to show Abraham something real important here, I see this as Abraham getting the opportunity, being given the opportunity by God to understand God's heart when God judges. See, because as much as um, I'm not saying that what that that conversation is fake in any way. It's not. It really happened. And those are really God's responses and Abraham's questions and thoughts. But the reality is that God doesn't need to go down and see what is happening in Sodom. 
he already knows every heart in those cities and he knows what the right judgment is and what he is going to do. But he doesn't want to hide this from Abraham. And so when Abraham asks God boldly and yet with incredible humility whether God would kill the righteous with the wicked, and then he probes six times to see how many righteous people would be needed in that city to save it. When he, when he does that, and God says every time that he's not going to destroy the city for the sake of 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, he's not. But it stops, and we're left with this sad conclusion that even though God would not destroy the city if there were 10 righteous people in it, God is going to destroy the city because there aren't 10 righteous people in it. And I have no hesitation in saying that had Abraham continued down to one, even one would not have been found. You see what Abraham saw in, in this conversation on that day is the two sides of the judgment. The first, that God has the absolute right to judge and he will bring judgment. And the second, that there is no one righteous, not even one. Because, you know, by this time, Abraham's lived a little, right? He's lived long enough to have sinned quite seriously. And if he has even the slightest awareness of what goes on in his own heart and what his own hands have done, he would know that if he were in the city, he would not be counted among the righteous either. The judgment is fair. We may not like it, we may not want to admit it, but it is fair. Look at God's heart that he would spare entire cities full of evildoers for the sake of even 10 righteous people. That is God's heart of mercy. That is, those are the lengths to which God would go to demonstrate his mercy. The judgment, therefore, must be fair if God would go even so far as that. The hope is a substitute. Now, as I've said, the story ends rather abruptly because Abraham asked for 10. God says he will spare for the sake of 10. And then they finish speaking and God leaves and Abraham goes home. And then it's like, cut scene and we go to Sodom. Like, what happened? <laughs> it doesn't seem that the conversation comes to any sort of natural conclusion. It just kind of stops. But I, I think that Abraham at this point wasn't ready for the proper conclusion to the conversation yet. What he knew was that somehow, somehow, God would bring about through his family the way to deal with the judgment, the curse that is fairly deserved by all who are unrighteous 
and that's everyone. But he is given a shadow, a glimmer of what that answer might be. And this is the first time that we see in the Bible that the idea of a substitute is proposed and accepted by God. That somehow, somehow, a substitute who was truly sinless, who was righteous, could avert the judgment of God from evildoers, from sinners. Now, there isn't enough in this story alone for Abraham to have understood by any means. But we will see later, and particularly in chapter 22, a much clearer teaching of this for Abraham. But what we have here is Abraham left holding a question in his hand. How can the judge of all the earth do right and yet bless sinners? But we can see the answer, that the love and justice of God meet in the substitution of his righteous son for unrighteous people. And this is how the blessing is poured out. It is the only way that the blessing can be poured out, through the substitution of Jesus' righteous perfection for our sinful imperfection, through the substitution of Jesus' humble obedience for our prideful rejection. There is only one way to full and blessed life, and it is only found in Jesus. I wonder how these truths are shaping your life, how they are therefore shaping the lives of the communities in which we live, how it shapes our community as God's people in this place. The blessing of God is vital to life. Is that true for us? Do we understand? Do we acknowledge and really feel the weight of the blessing that is vital to our lives and existence? And what does that mean for the way that we share that blessing with the people around us? How is it that we come before God knowing that he will judge and that his judgment is fair and right and that without the blessing of a substitute, we ourselves would be under the curse, would be under judgment? How is it that we can live as a community that shows forth the blessing and the averted judgment to the world that is around us? Have you captured that? That without God, without knowing the blessing of God, Every single person will suffer a fate worse than the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
that they will live an eternity of non-life, of everything that is good, uh, the opposite of everything that is good and pleasing and righteous and life. I want to pray for us now, and I want to ask that we really um, take to our hearts these lessons, these truths, and allow them to shape the way that we live, to shape the way that we prioritize things in our lives to change the way that we look out at the world. Because so much of this world is lost without God. But he has given us his blessing. And as his people, through us, we have the offer of Jesus. We can show forth the incredible blessing that is in Christ. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we just want to thank you so much that you are good and fair, that you are righteous, that you love and that you love us. God, we know it does not give you pleasure to bring judgment. It does not give you pleasure to see people who are living lives that are turned away from you and whose lives are, are therefore absolutely lost and dark and hopeless. And God, they are blinded and this gives you no pleasure. Father, I pray, I pray that you would show us, Lord, by your spirit, how it is that you would have us live in this world as your people. How it is that you want us to take forward this vital blessing, to share it. Impress upon us the magnitude of the difference between a life without you and a life with you. And teach us how to love like you love so that we would desire to bring that fullness of life to the people around us who are dying without it. We ask this in your name. Amen.